0: Hi, this is Steve. And this is Lisa. And this is our podcast called I Married a History Teacher. It is indeed. Um, Lisa, we're in a tough spot here because we don't do current events usually. We do history. We do. But this feels like a very historic moment.
1: It does. Living history.
0: Living history, yes. Um, And I'm not talking about COVID. As you all know, we don't talk COVID on here. Um, What are we talking about, Lisa?
1: We are talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And the protests going around the country and the whole world, really.
0: Right. And we thought about what could our role be in all of this as a couple of white folks yeah. that don't have the perspective of being a black man and a black woman.
1: Right. Yeah, I think we, like so many people, want to be able to contribute to the dialogue in some way. Maybe mm-hmm. not say everything perfectly, but make an attempt to... To help this country move forward and and correct some of our wrongs and maybe widen our perspective.
0: Right. And I thought that a good way to do this is use our – use history as a medium, if you will, Mm. to sort of provide some context and background on why there's so many pissed off people right now, particularly pissed off African-American people.
1: Yeah. I mean I would argue – I mean a lot of people are angry and a lot of people are upset and sharing in a lot of pain. But yeah, yeah, no no more so than – and the black uh,
0: community right um, and, and ultimately I'd like people to realize that this is decades if not centuries old of an issue it's not just about George Floyd this is this is deep it goes deep it goes very historically deep historically very deep
1: yes centuries for sure
0: um, and that's what we want to do you know we want to explain to people at least using like this paper trail of history if you will of how we got to this point so
1: we can fix it and have more empathy and really understand really how just widespread the issue is, Mm -hmm. I think. And again, you're going to tell me a lot of things that I don't necessarily know the details of, but from what I have learned from you and from reading, yeah, I think it's it's pretty incredible how wide-reaching racism is in this country.
0: Right. And just a couple other more specific details I do want to talk about real quick. Okay. I'm seeing the words institutionalized racism and systemic racism being thrown around, okay? I'm hoping that we'll have a better understanding of what that means, what that looks like in practice by the end of this okay. pod. The other thing that I want to sort of clarify is what overt racism transitioning into subtle racism what that actually looks like because mm-hmm. that's a lot of what we're talking about here today is going to cover both of those sort of you know, buzzwords that are being thrown around a lot. Okay. okay. Sounds good. Um, should we get into it, Lisa? I thought of three different things from American history that sort of helps explain this sort of racial status quo we're at right now. Okay. You want to get into it? Let's do it, yeah. All right. So there's a couple of very important time point frames that we have to set here, okay? okay. Um, United States colonies and as a country, we had slavery for almost 300 years. Okay, it was African slavery, of course. Um, and then the Civil War is fought in that end slavery, and we passed what's called the Reconstruction Amendments. Okay.
1: We don't have any time, actual dates yet.
0: 19, eight, Sorry, <laughs> 1865 okay. is the end of the American Civil War. Okay. First slaves arrived in the colonies and. Fifteen seventeen. Okay. So we're looking at three hundred and fifty years of, of African slavery, right? So it's
1: a really, really long time.
0: It's a very long time. Yeah. Okay. And and that's important because it's we were slave territory for way longer than we haven't been. Yeah. At this point.
1: I think that that is huge. Yeah. I right. don't think people think of it that way at all.
0: But I would also not like to dwell on slavery just because it's such an obvious that was are shitty, and almost everyone, unless you're just a full-on over white supremacist, would tell you that slavery is terrible, so let's move past it, okay. right? Civil War ends 1865, and then over the next five years, Congress passes what we call the Reconstruction Amendments, okay. 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Do you know anything about any of these amendments?
1: I know that the 13th freed slaves.
0: 13th in slavery, to an extent, we'll talk about it, yep. 14th Amendment super, super important and complex, okay. uh, but it basically, it tries to say that, hey, if something exists in the federal laws, you can't dodge it on a state level.
1: Okay, so it's the concept of federalism?
0: Yes, it's a big part of it, okay. yeah. Uh, and then the 15th Amendment is just, um, basically, you can't tell people they can't vote, um, just because of the color of their skin. However, white or women still so couldn't vote. So black men could vote, white women could not mm. because of the 15th Amendment. Mm. All right, now let's focus on the 13th Amendment, Lisa. End slavery. Can I read it to you how it's phrased, though? Sure. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall be have duly convicted shall exist within the United States. Wow. So what's the big catch there, Lisa?
1: Well, I mean, I don't want to get too into it because I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're talking about that you essentially can put people in prison um, or convict people of crimes and treat them as slaves. Yes. Um, and I think there's huge parallels to be drawn to our current criminal justice system. and. Um,
0: Wow. You're getting ahead of us. So though. I know, that's I know, I know I want stay back in the, but that's the really late interesting. I didn't yeah. know that
1: was the language.
0: Yes, that is the language in the 13th amendment. So you're in the South and you just lost your labor force, right? It's 1870. You have no labor force, right? Mm-hmm. So the wording though, is if you didn't commit a crime, you can't have slaves, but if they did commit a crime, then you can have a slave, right? You can be a slave, I guess is more accurate, right? So This starts uh, you know, Jim Crow laws, but more importantly, I'm gonna focus on something called the Black Codes. Mm -hmm. And this Black Codes within the South are basically a creation of a whole bunch of laws that could be easily applied to most black people, especially freed slaves, okay? So you can arrest them, convict them of a crime, and put them back into servitude. And that's what the entire intention of the Black Codes were. And I'm gonna give you an example. The black codes outlawed vagrancy, which is essentially being homeless and unemployed. Mm. But Lisa, yeah. what happens to all these free Africans that just no longer have their plantation anymore?
1: There's a transitional period. Yeah, I mean, obviously,
0: right? So no one's gonna. If no one hires you, and uh. we never gave them their forty acres and a mule. Right. So, so many of these newly freed black men and women are vagrants. Especially because a lot of them left their plantations and followed General Sherman, the Union General, as he marched across the south, burning the south to the ground, essentially. They were just following him along, and then they end in coastal Georgia. So some of these slaves that have like, grown up in Louisiana, Mississippi, they're far from home. Mm. And they sure as hell don't have a lot of money. Right. So it's very easy at this point to find black people wandering around, no home, no jobs, arrest them, put them back into servitude. And this is sort of what was going on in the 1870s and early, even going on to the late, uh, or sorry, not late, but early 1900s. Yeah, that's awful. Um, now, here's the craziest part, right? Is that in the South after the Civil War, it's an exaggeration to say that it was like a failed state, but it was like destroyed by Civil War. There wasn't a lot of stuff in place, including Police forces. Do you want to take a guess at who was enforcing the black codes if there wasn't a lot of police forces?
1: I mean, militia made up of farmers?
0: Uh, I mean, sort of. Militia might be too much of a, uh, too strong, but you're very close. Vigilante groups, Ooh. such as the very famous, perhaps, get there. Farmers that are vigilantes the, that don't the like the KKK? black people KKK oh
1: my God I, I, I didn't want to answer that but really yes. Wow
0: so you have large a lot of the times they are Confederate soldiers former Confederate soldiers that invented the KKK and they uh, the sole purpose of them being like starting was basically to police against black people to arrest them for violating the black Codes and basically re-enslave them because there wasn't solidified police force.
1: And so I'm going to ask, at the expense of seeming ignorant and embarrassing myself, what is the difference between Jim Crow laws and the Black Cove?
0: There really isn't a difference. I, I think Jim Crow is sort of the greater term for this error. It's called the Jim Crow error. Error? Era. sorry. Uh, maybe it was an error, though, huh?
1: <laughs> definitely an
0: error. Uh, um, and that covers basically a time of... Uh, Reconstruction lasted 12 years, so that's, you're looking at 1877, and then we roll in the Jim Crow era, uh, which the Black Codes was sort of the law of the Jim Crow era, okay.
1: um,
0: and the Jim Crow era lasts, arguably, up until the 1950s. What Yeah. the fuck? Yeah. Sorry, excuse me later. Um, so, anyhow... Yeah. What's going to happen around 1915?
1: Was the K- but the KKK? How long was the KKK arresting people?
0: Uh, okay, All right. so let's talk more about this whole concept about the KKK. So the KKK, when it was started, were kind of seen as like the heroes of the South, like in Reconstruction. And there was even this movie. Have you ever heard of *A Birth of a Nation*? I've heard of it. I haven't watched. I think it came out like 19 some in the 19 teens sometimes, and it was like a huge film, huge film, very hit film. Lots of people saw it. Uh, it was before there's color or, or talking in movies, mm-hmm. but it basically is like some like a 50-minute movie about like his, the story is the KKK saves a white woman from being raped by a black guy, and this was like a hit movie, right? And that's sort of like it is like a great defining factor of the uh, <laughs> of the South. I think it really like defines the Jim Crow era, right? Isn't it's like. Um,
1: yeah, they almost – they view themselves in like a heroic
0: manner. As exactly. To like a horrific – Yeah, and I'm not saying that the KKK was the police of the South up until the 1950s. Don't get me wrong. They started police departments and stuff like that. But we'll talk about what the police was doing originally too. Right. Um, it's also important to note that the KKK was not isolated to the South. It was all over the country. Mm-hmm. Like in fact, like Indiana –
1: yeah, Indiana is bad, was
0: terrible. Bad I <laughs> mean, they had like half the government with KKK members and mm. stuff like that. Mm. Um, but anyway, let's move on a little bit. Actually, okay. I want to talk about something else about the KKK. It's a quick side note, sure. But it's another racially charged issue that we're dealing with right now. Okay. And it's the Confederate statues.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. The Confederate statues. Mm-hmm were not put up after the Civil War. They were not put up to honor, like, our fallen soldiers. Mm. A lot of them were put up 19, the year 1900 to, like, 1920 and into the 1920s. And they were literally put up by, at a lot of times, like, with the KKK in the audience ceremonially, basically sending a symbol... Of black people, you're not welcome here, or black people who shouldn't feel comfortable here. And like, as a Virginian, this is a tough subject for me. Like, I have pride in my state, but Virginia was like this huge. I mean, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson—they're Virginians, and they fought for slavery. They fought to maintain slavery, yeah. and we put statues of them up everywhere.
1: And you. Yeah, and like schools named after them—it's everywhere, right?
0: And there's this there's this argument that you can't you can't whitewash history, but it, this is not that. This It wasn't this. Like, those statues were put up. Go look it up. Google it if you don't believe me. Google, like, you know, postcard of Robert E. Lee statues. And what you're going to see is one in, like, ten people in the audience is decked out in KKK hoodies. Yeah, that's disgusting. Another thing, if you don't believe me, if you think I'm wrong, think about it this way. There are Confederate statues in 28 states in the United States. Do you know how many Confederate states there were, Lisa? Um, Eleven. Oh, wow. Eleven. So that means that we have spread Confederate soldiers into states that didn't even have anything to do with Confederacy, and some that weren't even states during the Civil War. So you try to tell me that's history, I don't know. I, that, that's that's a symbol. That's That's intentional. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And I also... I mean, history is so rich and full of so many things besides just war. So to say that even even if this whole narrative that is false is true, right, that it was to be re- you know, put up these statues just to remember something that happened in history, there's nothing wrong with taking them down and replacing them with something else, it, just objectively taking everything else away. I mean, there's so much that we can capture about history. And the fact that this is tied to the KKK and that there, it is, symbolizes so much pain for the country, the resistance is is very frustrating to me.
0: Yes. But, again, that's not what we're here to talk about. We right. can do a whole different pod on that concept. Yes. Okay. Uh, i, I was just providing some food for thought for the, the let's not forget history folks out there. Yeah. Um, like but, anyway, let's get back to our main story here, which is... Black people will get sick of living in the South, essentially, and being harassed by KKK and later the, poli- the actual police, and they migrate to the North, which is something we call the Great Migration, to the large time period starting about 19-
1: 1915. Wow. So that's, a, that's like several decades, though, to stay in the South. I mean, I guess it's just where everyone... It is.
0: There limited resources. Right. right. No, for
1: sure. It's expensive to move and yeah, when you're around your
0: community. Right. Yeah. Um, so a bunch of people start moving specifically to cities in the North. Your Chicago's, your Detroit's, um, Washington DC and Baltimore were big ones, New York City. Mm-hmm. They migrate. But here's the problem with the North, right? Mm-hmm. Is the North didn't have exposure to black people. The only, most of what they knew about black people came from something called minstrel shows which were super racist shows designed to entertain white people who didn't know what black people were like. This is what Jim Crow is. Jim Crow is a character from a minstrel show, okay? Mm -hmm. And minstrel shows that depicted black people one of two ways. Like these sort of bumbling idiot buffoons that are like singing, dancing morons. Mm -hmm. And or I guess I should say like violent rapey criminals Ugh. and these are the ways that minstrel shows portray black people this is why blackface is so offensive because it was being played by white people acting like black people
1: um am I supposed to minstrel like that's just the name of the shows that did that did this it doesn't have yeah I, I it could
0: give you a better answer but okay, we okay. can move on right and this is what the north knew of black people So now all of a sudden, all of these black people are migrating to these northern cities and all these white people have no idea what they're expecting, either bumbling idiots or rapists and murderers. And of course, that's not what they want in their neighborhoods. So the North actually organized and prepared official police forces to essentially protect white people from black people in their violent ways. And what you see a lot of in the cities like Detroit and Chicago is white mobs committing crimes about new to sorry committing crimes on newly arrived black families. Okay. The police showing up and arresting the black victims of crimes. Ugh. This happens all over the place, all over the city. The NAACP uh, started tracking it so you could look through records of countless examples of this. One very famous example happened in 1919 in your hometown of Chicago, Illinois, Lisa. Black child swimming on a segregated beach stoned to death by a bunch of white men. Police show up despite massive amounts of eyewitness testimony, they don't arrest anyone. Because the police have been organized to protect white people from these new southern black invaders, right? (laughs) And their basically attitude was this was a segregated beach. This black child shouldn't have been on this beach. And that's sort of just like the status quo up until the 1950s where we're going to start moving into the civil rights movement.
1: And... It's such a
0: long time. It is a long time. It doesn't really sort of end that era until 1968 with the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And that's when you're going to see the removal of, I guess, racial or racist language from all laws. Um, so like segregation, that ends in 1958 um, with Brown versus Board. And then, you know, other violations like voting violations. And just as a
1: reminder to our audience, Brown versus Board is... I'm going to try to answer this, but I might get it wrong. It's when they basically abolished segregation in schools,
0: right? Yes. It it applied to schools, but by extension was applied to all public places. Right. Because of like a legal precedent kind of. Yeah, exactly. And technically private places still are allowed to be segregated. I don't know if you're allowed to say like straight up like no black people or whatever, but like there are so many like country clubs across America that don't allow black people and they don't like whether it's in their bylaws or not, they literally just don't have black people because they're not allowed wow, well,
1: yeah, and I think that gets at like yes in sixty eight all like clear overt racist language may have been removed from from laws, but there's so much practice and whatnot
0: that right, happens. and that's what all this is leading up to is my okay. my greater point here is that a lot of this damage has already even been done since 1968, right? Mm-hmm. So you have generations of black families that don't trust the police because they are not there to protect them. Yeah. And then something not great happens. Well, I, I, you know, it's a well-intentioned, which is the creation of basically like, um, like criminal justice science, essentially, mm-hmm. which is let's make policing more efficient. Let's start crunching data. Let's look at these numbers. But we've had racists' numbers, For the last hundred years, right? It's like white mob throws brick through black family's window, black family gets arrested. So it looks like black people are committing more crimes. Right. So our baseline data is showing that black men are committing all of these crimes and that black people are committing crimes in white neighborhoods and that black women are more likely to commit crimes in black or the white women. You know what I'm saying?
1: And and when you say like this the science, so to speak, I mean this is being taught in universities, this is being taught to police, like Well,
0: sure, yeah. I mean I think it all like all things, it sort of starts developing in, in universities, right? It's it's huh. I mean you can major in criminal justice now and like these things are, uh, you know, the, made to be a science as much as they possibly can. Right. So
1: they they try to make a science of the, the demographics of someone that was likely to commit a crime without actually looking into mm-hmm. the the true history of why people are being arrested to begin with.
0: Yes. I'll, I'll try. I don't know if this is like a direct metaphor for like better technology, but I think of it almost as like an earlier example of like – Facial recognition technology right now is big in solving crimes. Mm-hmm. The problem is is that it's less accurate for black people than white people, and the reason for that is because facial recognition, facial recognition technology was created basically by dumping just millions of photos into a computer and like collecting data on it. Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out that we have way more pictures of white people. Right. Just because there's more white people and because there's more white people celebrities and stuff like that. There's just outsized representation. Right. So it's way more accurate for white people than it is for black people. And this is, like, happening today right now. And then, to me, it's just, like, our baseline data for this policing science is off. Right? Right.
1: Right. And no no one thought to, to like, scratch. I mean, like, because... I feel like that's almost an easier mistake to make today, right, if you weren't alive during that time. But, I mean, these people knew, right? I mean, they ha- it probably was common knowledge how black people were treated by the police back then. So how, I mean... It is isn't. it, that, it isn't. I mean, I is it common knowledge? I don't know. I wasn't alive back then. That's well, what I'm saying. Right, right, like, I like, just feels like... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess...
0: I don't think... It, but that's not the narrative we give about the police when people are young. Officer friendlies and... Yeah, yeah. Part of the neighborhood. And I, don't get me wrong, I don't want to sound anti police. I think there's good police officers out there that mean very well. Uh-huh. Um, but that's not always how it's been historically.
1: Right.
0: And that stuff gets deeply rooted. It gets into the data, as we just saw.
1: Uh-huh. It
0: gets into people's family understanding, their parents teaching them about their police, the grandparents teaching them about police. And it's, yeah. yeah. And it's if it's a bunch just, of white
1: people at the university doing the data, they might not think to exactly. question it. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And I think, I, I don't know how eloquent I'm going to be about this, but something else I want to touch on just with the police before I think you wanted to move on to a second topic. Um, in addition to like all this like super overt history that you just went through in the early 1900s. Um, up to you know just like biases based on criminal justice data I mean I think it it's even more deep seated in the sense that there has been a fear instilled in all of society police officers inclusive of that of the black criminal right and that's you know may, may have started with minstrel shows but has been kind of permeated throughout our culture for so long um, and so even now when you have officers that may be trained on all the right things and told all the right things to do, um, they have been swimming in this society where they are kind of inherently more afraid of a black person. And so their actions may drive them to do things that are horrific. Um, and that also adds to distrust. So to me, it's, you know, it's just incredible because you have all this history to wade through, all this damage that's been done, and still all these aggressions that are still occurring based on fear, which is sadly, like, an extremely powerful human emotion that can lead to, like, awful outcomes. So.
0: Right. Uh, yeah, very fair. I mean, I think that's very true. It's like people that, – that there's a song in this, in this musical called Avenue Q. It's everybody is a little bit racist, mm-hmm. right? And the point is, it's not like we're not choosing to be racist because we're assholes. It's kind of ingrained into us whether we like it or not.
1: Yeah. And It's the soup we all swim, swim in. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: There is one other kind of, maybe it's a vague point, but I just want to emphasize the health impacts of being black in America. Um, there's a lot of facets of it, and sometimes I think it gets overlooked in all these conversations, but it can be just as deadly, if not more so, than police violence. And one is the trauma that comes from being part of a race that was enslaved and then marginalized, oppressed, overtly, covertly. Actually, Hopkins just released a study not that long ago showing that trauma actually is passed from mother to child. So when you go through something as traumatic as being enslaved, being black, all the things that come with that, the, that pain, that emotional charge it actually is passed along to you. And there's also a direct correlation between having experienced trauma and health outcomes. They now have studies showing that based on how many traumatic events you've had as a child will directly correlate to how likely you are to have heart disease, to have high blood pressure, um, a myriad of issues, obesity. So there's that element. There's also the fact that if you're living in an area that doesn't get invested in, it means you're usually living in subpar housing. The rates of asthma in Baltimore City are so staggering and so upsetting. And it's almost all in the Black population. And of course, that has a lot of other related health impacts. And, so, and also, you know, related to seeing what we, with COVID deaths and how there's disproportionately more Black people dying from the disease... It's not just because they don't have as good of access to healthcare, but it's because they're literally were sicker to begin with, and there are of course economic consequences of being sick because you can't work, um, and it's just again it's just a really vicious cycle, and I think my overall point not to be negative per se, but for example when I hear like fuck the police like. It's like, no, like, literally fuck everything, ever. Like, it, it touches all areas of life, and it's going to take a ton of work and a lot of effort by everyone to right these injustices, because even if tomorrow all of this stuff goes away and everyone's not a racist and every structural institutional issue goes away, the damage is still done, and that perpetuates itself unless you take active action to write it and so that was just one of my thoughts that I wanted to contribute
0: that was great Lisa way to end our first part of the uh, pod strongly and let's move on to the next element Um, again I think a big element to this of everything going on is also uh, financial it's economical so I wanted to do another topic um, about I have three prepared I don't know if we're going to get to all three but the next one okay we'll see how it goes um I want to talk about this, something called redlining. And and Lisa, you know about redlining. I do, yes. Baltimoreans know about redlining because it was a huge impact on our city and our communities. And it was a massive impact on black people across the world. Not the world, the country. country. I don't want to, you know. I'm so dramatical. So. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, it's dramatic enough that it was this country. Um, yes, no. Uh, Baltimore speaks about redlining. I feel like almost every other article I read from the Baltimore Sun, there is an, a nod to that, and um, and I think it's like extremely important to cover because, I, like you said, like I think the economics of racism are so profound and affect every facet of living really um that it's it's important to know where it stems from
0: okay now we're doing that thing where we're talking about the topic for a while without explaining it so <laughs> let's get back on track yeah, we're so, bad at that. <laughs> here's the deal with redlining all right and i'm gonna i'm gonna use baltimore a lot as the base for this but it is happening all over the country no. All right, so just give a little background on the city of Baltimore. In 1910, the city of Baltimore passed like a horrific law that literally made it illegal for black people to live in white designated neighborhoods and white people to live in black designated neighborhoods. Okay? So obviously, <laughs> you know, segregation it's like overt racism, right? Right. However, that law eventually gets broken down it was a violation of the 14th amendment right Mm -hmm. um but the damage had been done you have the black people living in their communities and the white people living in their communities that did extend to people like the jews living in the jewish neighborhood and stuff like that Yeah,
1: actually i have when i read about redlining it, it actually applied to all minorities
0: all minorities even religious like catholics and jews yeah 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 um but anyway, what's going to come around is something called the Federal Homeowners Loan Corporation or what I'm going to call HOLC. Okay. okay? HOLC. This is like legitimately FDR, one of the best presidents we've ever had, great leader. Okay. But part of his recovery system was starting HOLC. Okay? And the the concept here was to loan out a bunch of money to people so they could start buying homes during the Great Depression. Well, you can't just loan out money willy-nilly, right? Banks have to recollect their money. So, what they did is they identified four different color coding neighborhoods. Okay, ways to color code the neighborhoods. It was kind of confusing. Sorry, Mm. but green was labeled as the best neighborhoods, and it was almost all always already middle class, northern European. Christian types, okay? Mm -hmm. And then you have the blue neighborhoods, and these were still desirable, but not the best. And then you had yellow, who were designated on the decline, and then you had red, which was labeled hazardous. And if it was a black neighborhood, it was immediately labeled hazardous. Nice. Okay? I I shouldn't say black, but people of color, minorities, their neighborhoods were immediately labeled as red-lined Neighborhoods. And if you lived in those red lined neighborhoods, you essentially could not get a loan to purchase a home. If you did get a loan, it was super, super predatorial. And you probably would be better off not even getting
1: it. Right. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, it's just, I wonder now, because like, at least what I've seen of the home lending process, the location of the home is almost irrelevant to whether they decide to loan it to you. I mean, it's it's if you can prove a steady income.
0: Um, are you talking about modern loans? Yes. Can we can we hold – we're going to talk a little bit more about modern loans okay, later. Okay, okay. But I, just for some historical context here, basically what's going to happen is all this money during the Great <laughs>
1: – Sorry, I don't want to interrupt. But, but I just want to – all I want to be clear on is do – are you of the belief that like they chose to determine loans this way so they could be racist. Okay,
0: great question. It's not a belief. It was literally written into the language of the federal Holsey. It's, like, legitimately in there. Okay, so they were clearly Minority just trying to only lend, not, loan, lend yes. money to white people. Absolutely. Non-Jew,
1: white, Non-Jewish white people from a certain part of Europe.
0: Yes. Yeah. Right? And, and that's all that money is being dumped into these neighborhoods in the 1930s. Mm okay and this is the great depression so things are getting worse and worse in the minority neighborhoods and things are getting better and better in these like literally zoned white neighborhoods yes. okay
1: yes getting access to affordable credit is so important for building wealth
0: right exactly and that's the main point i was trying to make here is that like yeah. owning a home is a, in america is like that's baseline for building wealth here Yes, And the other thing that's important, like we're talking about specifically home loans, but all of this information is still applied to loans for starting businesses as well. Yeah. So you couldn't start your own business. It was a lot harder to get a loan if you lived in these like sort of red designated areas to start a business. They made it almost impossible to get a loan to build wealth yeah. for minority people. And this isn't in the times of some of the best leadership we've ever had, and minorities are still being discriminated against, right? Now, moving up that timeline... Technically, the Fair Housing Act of 1968 is going to remove that language, that sort of racist language from everything to do with housing, Mm -hmm. right? And the reality, though, is that not that much has changed between 1933 and now. It's changed a little bit. But if a study as early as 2015 by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, or the NCRC, Mm It shows like appalling statistics. Like There's a huge discrepancy in lending in um, white versus black neighborhoods. Lending to white individuals, you are four times more likely to get a loan than black individuals. Um, most shocking of all this is that like a lot of people could think, well, statistically, black people are poorer than white people, which is true. But even according to this study... White people were more likely to get a loan even in the same income bracket of, of black people. And we're talking about 2015.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, living in Baltimore, that's not surprising at all. Yes. Because the, the whites here keep doing better um, and the black neighborhoods are struggling even more. Even as everyone in this city, it feels like, wants to make a huge dent in that. It's so entrenched and I'll just say, you know, what you're talking about, like, you know, black people may be poor. And there's still this, this lending happening, which you could attribute to, ra- to like you know racist views that, again, that our society's been swimming in. But also, even if, even if not, right? Even if it's just, oh, well, black people are poor. It's our fault that they're poor. The laws that were passed prohibited them from building wealth. And it goes beyond just building wealth and home ownership, there's so many effects from not having a strong community like higher home values leading to better public schools, leading to better education, leading to better opportunities, to better jobs, to more wealth generation. It's such a vicious cycle. Um, and so you kind of have this two-pronged thing going on, right, where clearly there is still some racism going on in lending practices even though they are maybe completely unconscious to the people that are carrying them out. And then you also have the effects of decades and decades and decades of, you know, economic oppression, really.
0: I got some stats to prove what you're saying, Luis.
1: Give it to me. I love numbers.
0: All right. So this was passed about eight decades ago. Eight decades ago. Sorry. Okay. Um, Which
1: would be 1960?
0: 1930s. Again, we're talking about 1930s. That's more than eight decades ago. 10, no nine. Nine, nine decades ago. I can't do math. That was si- shit. <laughs> anyway, so let's just say it. Okay, so three, three-fourths of the red lines neighborhoods across the entire country mm-hmm. are still classified as LMI, which is low-to-moderate-income neighborhoods. Now, you're thinking, well, hey, 25% made it out. But usually, I'll, I'll give you great, again, an example from Baltimore. Along the Baltimore Harbor, it's like super nice and super uh, white right now. Yes. Right? A lot of wealth, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Those were redlined neighborhoods. And not all of them. A big chunk of them were actually redlined neighborhoods because it's where like underpaid black folks worked on the the shipyards and stuff. Mm -hmm. But as the shipping industry dies, Mm -hmm. it becomes touristy. Mm -hmm. Right? And people love being on the water. Whether you're white, black, blue, or purple, you love being on the water. We're humans, right? It's pretty. Yeah, it is very pretty. So all this investment money came in. All these white people move in. and that once redlined neighborhood is no longer poor, but it's because all of this out, um, you know, outside investment arrives because of water, and that happens across the country as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I it, this is I mean that's gentrification, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, essentially, yeah. Um, Anyhow, um, of course, and then of sixty-four percent of the "quote unquote" hazardous neighborhoods, even today, sixty-four um, percent of them are minority majority mm-hmm. neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Okay, and hazardous.
1: You mean like the red lines?
0: Yes, that's what they were labeled hazardous. You're right, A right. um, couple food for thought to end it on here. Okay, um, lending companies. Mm-hmm. Okay, frequently blame. Uh, What's your, your credit score? Mm-hmm. They're saying it's not race-based. This is a, all based on numbers is credit score, all right? So a lot of sort of like the ACLU and places like that, they've been trying to, to pass laws to make it more transparent what's involved in these credit stores mm-hmm. to sort of prove while fixing the situation that race is involved. Yeah. And they try to pass these laws, and the Senate blocked it in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, however... We do have to do our due diligence here and talk about Donald Trump and opportunity zones. Yes. Because Trump does get a lot of shit for being racist. People assume he's racist. But the opportunity zones is at least a well-intentioned thing where people can skip capital gains tax if they invest in these low-income communities, many of which are minority communities.
1: Yes, so the opportunity zones were part of the tax reform bill that um, was passed under his administration, I think in 2017. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say, and he developed it with a, I don't, I don't even know if he, I don't know how much Trump himself had to do with the, sure. the ideas behind this. It was actually a black Senator that I don't remember. Uh, what, I think I don't remember what state he's from, but, um, I think Alabama, um, it's either Alabama or Arkansas, I think. Um, sorry, Steve's telling me to <laughs> <It's laughs> so stop getting caught up in it. the, uh, you know, unimportant details. Um, yeah, so is, like you said, you know, the idea is to spur investment in historically underinvested areas. Um, I will also say though, it's it's yet to be seen how successful that will be, right? I think it's gonna be a decade till we can really say if that actually helped champion the black cause in America. Um, certainly money is being brought in, but of course, I mean, who's saving on the capital gains? I mean the, the rich are still getting richer here, and then there have been trying to pass laws. To make sure that the community is hired, that they're empowered through all the money coming through. But again, that, those things aren't always happen, even though that they, you know, on paper it's required. So it will be interesting to see. But yes, that did happen under his administration.
0: Yeah. That, you know, got to be fair. Yeah. Got to mention, it was well-intentioned. Yes. Lisa, there's one more I want to do. We got time. This is a shorter one. I I really wanted to focus on something that started past 1968, too. So we can really get into subtle racism here. Okay. Okay? So what I decided to do, and again, there's lots of examples. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the war on drugs. It's going to be very stats-based. Yeah. Less sort of historical story-based, but I think it's really important.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's huge.
0: Yeah. So... the war on drugs is sort of unofficially it's not like a you can't you know actually literally declare a war on drugs right Well, but, you, can,
1: <laughs> you can declare it de- yeah. well, it's not yeah. it's maybe a little vague in implementation but
0: right so uh, 1971 mm-hmm. richard nixon's president yep okay and he says that public enemy number 1 in this country is drug use
1: mhm
0: okay now Let's be clear here, like we gotta be, we gotta talk about constituents and political parties. So, for years, decades, black people voted for what party following the Civil War?
1: Is this before or after this party split?
0: Well, that's what I'm trying to get at. Oh, I think they voted for the Republicans. Why? Well,
1: that was the party of Lincoln, which is more associated. Good. Yeah, and there was the Southern Democrats, which you could argue are now the modern-day Republicans.
0: Yeah, it was called the, so- the Solid South. Yeah. Right? So Nixon gets elected at a very interesting time. It was one of the first elections where the Solid South is no longer the Solid South because the civil rights gives us a paradigm shift. All right? Mm-hmm. So Democrats in the 50s and 60s in the South – OK, they're going to start shifting to the Republican Party and then and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. OK. And the nuances of this is, you know, we'll have to cover that on a different episode. Mm-hmm. But- and
1: I'm, I'm going to say something a little snarky right now. Hmm. But I, this this is a really significant shift. And I actually learned about it reading uh, the new Jim Crow book, which is really interesting. And, um, you know, the Republicans love to claim Lincoln in their defense that nothing that they may say or do is is racist. Not to say that Democrats aren't also very complicit, but, I mean, Lincoln was of the Republican Party, but at a time when it was flipped in this country. Let's where there be was, clear
0: what that means. When Republicans were liberal.
1: When Republicans were liberal and Southern Democrats were conservative.
0: Yes. Yes. LBJ was president in 1968.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. is a Democrat Passed the Civil Rights Act, okay? That's going to be a big contributing factor. Got it. And you're going to see the paradigm shift, Mm -hmm. okay? Now, Nixon, Republican, okay? He, after declaring the war on drugs... 1971, it's going to introduce all this new stuff for non violent crimes involving drugs. We're talking mandatory minimums, we're talking harsher sentences, we're talking jail time for possession of drugs. Yeah, this is where you're going to see all the, the classifications of drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they called? The uh, like zone one drug, or whatever. It's you know what it's not zone
1: about? one, it's yeah, it's type
0: 1. Type yeah, type think, 1. She yeah. even like included like yeah. marijuana as a type 1 drug. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. It still is, right? Or, is no, it, or did it, it get declassified? No, it's declassified
0: and decriminalized now. But, yeah. um, or is it, class,
1: is it class... Sorry, I think we're messing it up.
0: It's not. It's moot, right?
1: Moot. So... Uh, sorry, I always imagine a cow moving.
0: It's sort of like, you know, Jimmy Carter was like one of the shittiest presidents we've ever had, but he... Sort of lets the war on drugs decline a little bit. But then Ronald Reagan gets elected and it becomes a huge part of like Nancy Reagan, just say no. The Reagan administration passes um, an anti-drug abuse law in 1986 that's going to just even like enhance the war on drug laws even more intensely. Now, this is going to result... In some crazy statistical changes, okay? So in 1980, there were 50,000 people in prisons in America for nonviolent drug charges. By 1997, so 17 years, there was 400,000 people in jail for nonviolent drug charges. By 2014, because that's how long a lot of these laws lasted, almost half of America's prison population was in there for drug related charges. nonviolent. Yes, nearly half. Now, this statistic gets even crazier if you factor in the fact that Americans, there's more Americans in prison than any other country around the world by far. We're 25% of the world's prison population. And half of that population is in there for drug-related issues. Now, some of you are thinking, Steve, what the hell does this have to do with race? All right, well, I'll tell you what this has to do with race, Lisa. (laughs) Let's look at some stats. Okay, during the war on drugs, blacks were four times more likely than whites to get arrested for marijuana. Blacks were 30% of possession charges, despite being an estimated 12.5% of the actual drug users. Okay, people of color make up 80% of America's federal drug charges despite being only about 26% of the population. Okay? My, I don't know how to put this, the craziest statistic I saw, black people's average prison time for nonviolent crime was 58.7 months. White people's average sentence for violent crimes was only three months longer than that. 61.7. So this includes marijuana possession versus, like, assault and batter. Okay? Now, you could still argue this. There's stats. Stats can present anything that you want. Okay? Mm -hmm. So I would like to provide further evidence of how this was race-based. Yes. We're going to do this by rewinding some shit. Let's rewind to 1986. Lisa, give me your best rewinding noise. Ah, ah, ah. Nice. Okay. (laughs) 1986, the anti-drug abuse law. Lisa, we're going to have to talk some harsh truths about cocaine. Okay. People don't like saying this, but this is a podcast and we're all open-minded people here, so let's talk about cocaine. Okay. Okay. Cocaine itself, pure cocaine, Mm -hmm. cheap or expensive?
1: I would guess cheap
0: cocaine, pure Colombian cocaine. Oh, you mean
1: after it's processed and you can snort it.
0: And you buy it in the United States? Oh, no, it's of expensive.
1: It's expensive. Sorry, I thought you meant like the yes. just the leaves and like as a farmer or something.
0: Oh, no, no, no. I mean when when the white powder hits the streets of the United States. Yeah, no, it's very expensive. It's very expensive. Yep. Okay. Unfortunately, it feels it it gives you feelings of euphoria and it's extremely addictive.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? And it's expensive. Mm-hmm. Okay. The 1980s, someone figures out that if you cook up cocaine oh, <laughs> okay, with baking soda, you create something called crack cocaine, mm-hmm. which was way, way cheaper than buying pure cocaine. Right. Also
1: more dangerous and more addictive.
0: Yes. And it's in America. In America, does this is not an exaggeration. of the world's recreational drugs. So it is touching every level of America, drugs. The richest of the rich are doing drugs. The poorest of the poor are doing drugs in America. All right? The rich people are doing cocaine in the 80s. The poor people are doing crack cocaine. Yep. Okay? During the 1986 law, 500 grams of pure cocaine carried the same sentence and the same penalties for five grams of crack cocaine.
1: What the hell? I mean, 500, I mean, the, the, the former is intent to distribute. I mean, the, the latter is just possession.
0: There is no... That's ridiculous. There's no way to justify this logic other than either race or socioeconomic... Socioeconomic discrimination. Yeah. 500 grams of cocaine versus five grams of crack cocaine. Yeah. That's okay. That's so horrible. Now, I would like to rewind and we're going to end on this because it's just really difficult to argue against this. Okay. Okay. Let's rewind back to 1971. Give me the rewind noise again, Lisa. Uh, uh, uh. Nixon. Declare the war on drugs as part of his re-election campaign, okay? Mm-hmm. Later, 1994, mm-hmm. John Ehrlichman, a Nixon aide on domestic policy, is going to tell a reporter in Harper's Magazine in 1994 the following quote about how they are going to get Nixon re-elected, okay? We had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be there against the war or black, but by getting the people to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt these communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did is exactly how this stuff continues even after the 1968 Civil Rights Act.
1: The amount of ego and desire for power and lack of regard for humanity to so nonchalantly do that to an entire country and generation is staggering to me. Mm -hmm. I truly... I I can't.
0: eh. It's just, to me, sort of like the unfortunate... Side effect of democracy. You you got to get reelected. It's It's one of the downfalls of the democratic system. You got to do what you got to do to get elected. I not mean, if
1: you have morals.
0: Well, I will say this. Nixon was good at getting elected. He won the next election in one of the largest landslides in history.
1: Well, he had a pretty big faceplant after that.
0: Really. <laughs> yeah. So you
1: can suck it. That's karma right there, buddy.
0: It's true. True. He sure did.
1: Um... Yeah, I will. also just wanted to add on that topic in general, though. In the spirit of being, trying to be objective and give credit where it's due, um, I mean, we've had the most progress in decades when it comes to issues regarding incarceration and these drug laws. Um, Under President Trump, he signed the First Step Act, um, which has made strides towards erasing some of these uh, sentences of drug offenders, um, of minor nonviolent drug offenders. I will say that it is due to the work of tireless work of people that have been passionate about this for years, that it's often, you know, been associated with the Democratic Party, but where credit is due is that he was willing to entertain the bill and eventually sign it. And I think that Republicans for a really long time weren't willing To agree to that. And because he has been unconventional in his approaches and not really completely tied to the establishment, I mean, it created an opening. And it's, you know, an aptly named, it's just the first step. But it is exciting. And I'm really happy that that happened. And as frustrating as politics in general can be, as all the anger can be around, you know, what Trump seems to be in the middle of often. Um, there's still good that's happened despite it, and I think that there's reason to hope.
0: Lisa, I'm going to leave you on that. I think that was well put. Thanks. I'm done. I talked a lot tonight. Yeah, you, you must be exhausted. That was a great point. Let's get out of here. Let's,
1: let's get out of here.
0: Here's to a better future. Uh, my name is Steve, and I was a history teacher.
1: My name is Lisa, and I married him.